From the Nevada Independent, this is On the Trail. I'm Jacob Solis. This week, we dive into the wild world of campaign fundraising. Nevada's first campaign finance filing deadline came and went last month, but it gave us the first glimpse into which campaigns are entering 2024 with the biggest war chests. But how much does all that money actually matter? And can Republican Governor Joe Lombardo wield it to stave off a Democratic supermajority in 2025? Porter Sean Galanka and Eric Nugaborn join me to break it all down. Let's start with a few introductions for anyone who's uninitiated. Eric Nugaborn, you cover state government and elections for the Indy. How are you today? Doing pretty well, Jacob. I'm tired, but it's going strong. We are surviving. Uh, and Sean Galanka is a politics and data reporter for the Nevada Independent. How are you, Sean? Um, I'm doing great. I'm thriving. That's good. That's good. And this is a sad one for anyone who does not have Twitter uh, for you listeners, this will be Sean's last show with us. He has left Nevada for the Pacific Northwest, uh, betrayed us, but we have roped him in to one final on the trail. So thanks for making the time, Sean. Glad to be here, Jacob, in my second to last day. And he said he's thriving, so maybe he's happy to be rid of us. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. We see how it is. We see how it is. You know, uh, but it would have been the same in Nevada, too. I mean, that's just that's just how I'm doing. It's true. It's true. Okay. Well, I guess that all said, I guess we should dive into campaign finance. So just to lay the groundwork for what we're talking about here, uh, we published two big stories on the NevadaIndependent.com that you should go read. Uh, but really what we're talking about is the state fundraising filing deadline, which we gave us sort of all of calendar 2023. And just some caveats, it doesn't give us every candidate. Not everyone has jumped into every race. Some people got in late, and so it's kind of only a partial report, uh, and so it's really not like the most comprehensive database available. All of that said, the money in those races have shown us that basically more than half a dozen races are going to probably decide control of the legislature. And I guess just to start out, Sean, what do we take from these reports? What do they actually tell us? Yeah, I mean, they give us just, you know, really, like you said, Jacob, kind of an early window into where the money stands in these races. Um, kind of as we laid out in these two stories, money is really critical for winning elections. You know, you can use it to to buy ads. You can use it to, you know, kind of pump up your ground game and get out, get your face in front of voters. I think that's, you know, that's really critical, especially in these down ballot races in a presidential election year. So, um, you know, kind of with the preface that money matters, um, what these initial reports showed us is, um, you know, who has the advantage at, at this point in the fundraising battle and in, in some of these really key competitive races. And it was a little split across the board, but we kind of have honed in on a few races that, like you said, Jacob, are going to be crucial to deciding will Democrats have super majorities in the Senate and Assembly next year that could override any Lombardo veto, or will Republicans manage to, you know, take away a seat in the assembly or kind of preserve how the Senate currently stands, um, which is 13 Democrats and eight Republicans in the Senate. That's one one shy of the two thirds supermajority. So, um, you know, Republicans are, are really banking on these advantages right now to kind of show their ability to you know prevent those supermajorities. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one other thing I want to touch on, too, is the way that these races that we're talking about are different than, say, federal races, right? Because in Nevada, it is sort of a quote unquote off year for state races because there's no gubernatorial election. There's no statewide races at all. Right. So attorney general, everything. That's the midterm. So even though there's a presidential year, there will be heightened turnout. 
there are no real statewide races for people to keep track of, but all of these legislative races are still happening. And like you said, this is going to decide whether or not Lombardo has that supermajority. So, Eric, I wanted to ask you, you've taken a close look at one of these races, Assembly District 37. Uh, who's in that district? Where's that district? And why should we care? Yeah, it's um, a important district. It's uh, located in Las Vegas. It's in Summerlin, kind of a, a wealthier suburban part of the Vegas Valley. And um, the current member is Assemblywoman Shay Backus. And it's a critical race because... And the, Backus is a Democrat, right? Yes, She's an incumbent yes, Democrat. An incumbent Democrat. And it's a critical race because the Democrats essentially need to, assuming they don't pick up any assembly seats, they need to hold all their existing assembly seats if they want to continue to have two-thirds supermajority in the assembly. And Bacchus has been in close races before, but what we looked at in this story is that she had a big financial disadvantage coming into this year. And it's kind of a question of how much does that really matter? She's facing off a Republican named David Brog, who previously ran for Congress. And it's an interesting, it'll be an interesting sort of litmus test of how much does money nine months, 11 months before the election actually matter. Because he, uh, David Brog, the challenger, um, raised around $150,000 last year, which is more than double that Bacchus has raised. Yeah, well, to that question, and I'm glad I have you two on the show today because uh, you put together some mighty spreadsheets of past electoral results compared to where fundraising was at this point in the cycle. And the question of, oh, does money help in an election? The sort of, you know, the common sense answer is, well, of course it would help to have more money. Who does not want to have the money advantage in an election? But whether or not you win with a money advantage is not so cut and dry. Is that right, Eric? Yeah, it's really a mixed bag. So we analyzed the closest legislative races since the 2016 elections and found that um, about two-thirds of the race winners had financial advantages, kind of where we are today um, in the year preceding an election. Um, and if you look at the story, there, there are some graphics, um, like you mentioned, that show that there are sometimes people who had really significant financial advantages who ended up losing. Um, one thing that comes to mind is Senate District 8 in 2022, the Republican had over $200,000, while the Democrat incumbent had around $80,000, and the Democrat incumbent won. Um, so while it's a very important part of the race, it by no means is determinant of who is going to win the race. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, you know, there's a lot of nuance here, I think, because, you know, take, for example, that Senate District 8 race, um, you know, in that seat, Democratic Senator Marilyn Dondero Loop. You know, she didn't raise as much money in the off year, but in the election year, she actually outraised her opponent, um, you know, pretty significantly. So that was another part of this analysis um, we didn't dive as much into in the story, but just understanding that, you know, the off year fundraising doesn't determine everything. Sometimes, you know, uh, an incumbent might kind of have a sleepy fundraising year, especially um, in an odd numbered year where, you know, they're, they're blacked out from fundraising during the legislative session. Um, and then kind of rev up the machine during the election year and, and you know, end up raising a bunch of money just to kind of sail through to re-election. So, um, you know, it doesn't doesn't show us everything necessarily, but um, clearly there's a trend that more money is an advantage. 
Absolutely. Well, and, and I guess just to get into the other factors at play here, uh, one thing I wanted to ask about is gerrymandering, right? Because Democrats had control of the legislature and the governor's office in 2021, basically for the first time giving them the opportunity to gerrymander these legislative districts in their favor. And at the time, the strategy that they used was essentially to maximize the number of competitive districts, maximize the potential to secure a supermajority. And now in 2022 and heading into 2024, are we seeing the fruits of that? Like, I guess, what is the degree to which gerrymandering is having an impact on whether or not the fundraising in these races is going to matter, Sean? It's a, it's a high degree. Um, you know, trying to understand those two together, it might, I think, depend on looking at, you know, kind of the specific district, what the, the history of it is, what the voter breakdown is, what the money is in that race. But um, here's kind of a, a staggering number for you, Jacob. In 2022, so this was the first election after, you know, the, the maps were newly redrawn by Democrats. Um, there were nine Senate seats up for, for election that year. Um, or sorry, I believe there were there were uh, 11, but there were nine seats that had a general election matchup that featured a, a Democrat and a Republican both. I think there were two elections where there was a Republican who was running unopposed or only against a third party candidate. Uh, but in those nine Senate races with both a Democrat and a Republican, Democrats won seven seats with those nine Democrats receiving a total of 201,000 votes. Republicans won two seats with those nine Republicans receiving 204,000 votes. So even though a greater number of voters, um, you know, voted for Republicans across those nine seats, they only won two of them. So I think that just kind of goes to show, you know, the effect of of these maps and how, you know, Democrats have kind of created these slim majorities that are enough to win a race. And then, you know, Republican districts they packed a bunch of Republicans in, into a single district to you know, really bolster their advantages. Yeah. And something I want to dig into is the kind of person who's voting in a down ballot race. And something that we've seen that I think is interesting over the last 10 years is the way that the sort of Democratic coalition has shifted away from the sort of we do better in high turnout elections to we do better in low turnout elections because the kind of person who's showing up to a low turnout election is the kind of person who's going to vote for a Democrat. And so what we saw in 2022 is like you said, Republicans technically had a structural advantage at the state level, something that got Joe Lombardo into the governor's office and almost got Adam Laxalt over the finish line in the uh, Senate race, but not quite. Uh, and they got wiped in these legislative races. So I guess, Eric, I'm curious, to what degree do we think that those structural advantages will matter now in a presidential year where the turnout makeup is different? Do we have a sense of that? Yeah, it'll be really interesting to look at. Um, I mean, I think um, if you, it, it's always interesting because I feel like whenever you ask like a, um, a campaign what what's going to happen in the election, they always say it depends on turnout, which obviously it depends on turnout. Like it, if they want the most number of votes, it, 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 it um, depends how many people are voting for you. Um, so, I mean, I, I am new to Nevada, so I have, I, I actually, I come from a similar state where there was a Republican governor and a Democratic legislature in Maryland. Um, so I, I personally, like, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens, um, because I think like, I, 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 to be honest, Jacob, like, I don't really know. I don't, and I think everyone, anyone who says they know for sure is kind of kidding themselves, um, because of the unique 
nature of politics right now in terms of will Donald Trump be on the ballot? What will that do in terms of turnout? Um, We've seen Republicans across the country um, do worse when Donald Trump is not on the ballot. Um, So it'll be, I think we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, well, and I guess just to get into some of the historical comparisons that we made in the stories, and and you you guys should go read the stories, listeners out there, because there's a lot more detail in there. But something that came up is if we're looking at Lombardo's efforts specifically to make sure that they don't lose uh, or, or rather that they don't get a Democratic supermajority, he's sort of handpicking candidates now in a way that maybe other governors in the past might not have or might not have done so directly in an off year. And I guess, Sean, what what is the sense that there is a difference in the way that Lombardo specifically is approaching his sort of Republican firewall? and the way that maybe the state GOP has approached it in the past? Um, I I think it's just kind of a sense of professionalism and organization that we have not seen in recent years. Um, You know, I think clearly the Nevada Republican Party has been in, um, you know, some level of disarray, at least in comparison to um, state Democrats. I mean, you know, I'm not going to get all into what happened with the kind of the, the progressive social over of the state Democratic Party and kind of how that's now changed back. Um, you know, there have been issues on that side of things, but Democrats for a long time have had the Reed machine and the culinary union. And so they've had these really highly organized, highly effective fundraising and canvassing operations that have helped power Democratic wins, you know, kind of up and down the ballot for years now. Um, and that same structure just, you know, has been pretty much non-existent on the Republican side. Um, now, I don't think what Governor Lombardo is trying to build is necessarily, you know, in the same exact vein as the Reed machine. But right now we can kind of see how his campaign machinery is taking shape and how it's working together um, to to really back his selected Republican candidates in, in assembly and Senate races. Um, you know, whenever one of these candidates announces that they're running for one of these key competitive seats, it comes with an endorsement from the governor. It comes from Uh, with one of the PACs that's supporting him kind of doing these social media and earn media type blasts and like really, you know, promoting these candidates. And so um, there's clearly a a kind of team of consultants and and, and PACs that are working together here toward the the common goal of preventing Democratic supermajorities to ensure that Lombardo is not, you know, rendered ineffective in the next legislative session. Yeah, just to add on to that, like it was interesting. The Nevada Assembly Republican Caucus yesterday announced um, six endorsements for for key assembly races, and those were the same six candidates that, in our story on um, Lombardo's kind of the pro Lombardo money machine, those were the same six candidates that received money from a pro pro Lombardo PAC. Um, so it is interesting to see kind of just the cohesion that appears to be existing between different entities like a Lombardo PAC and the Assembly Republican Caucus. Yeah. And I'm glad we're talking about the PACs because it really is the PACs that are the driver of this money, right? Because, I mean, for the uninitiated, right, there are not donation limits to PACs in the way that there are for individual candidates. And so the amount of money is just orders of magnitude greater, and then it can be spread around, right? This is when we talk about dark money, this is what we're talking about. And Lombardo in particular has used those PACs so far to help prop up those preferred candidates to make sure that they're well-prepared for a primary challenge if such a challenge exists, and they're set up for the general. Is that right? 
Yeah, 100%, Jacob. And it's a, it's a lot of money we're talking about here. I mean, Lombardo himself as a candidate raised about $1.5 million last year. That was more than you know any other individual in the state of Nevada. Um, the Nevada Way Pack, which you know we know Lombardo's <laughs> loves the, the Nevada Way. Was, the connection is clear there. Um, it raised about a million dollars last year. Um, and that's not to mention Better Nevada Pack or Stronger Nevada Pack that are you know kind of continuing the social media efforts. Um, you know, maybe don't have as much money. And like you said, Jacob, the, there's the dark money side of this. Um, there's a group called the Service First Fund, which um, originated as Lombardo's inaugural committee and is now um, a nonprofit 501c4 charitable org that can accept unlimited donations without needing to disclose its donors. And last year, that group already was running ads targeting Democratic lawmakers um, in, in seats that Republicans are hoping to flip. So, um, you know, you can see the, that, that machine is, is churning and there's a lot of different working parts to it. Yeah, it, honestly, it does remind me, I know you mentioned earlier the sort of democratic uh, schism in 2022, but just, just to contextualize, I mean, at the time, basically the Democrats used an outside group, Envy Democratic Victory, and they, that group became the sort of de facto campaign organ for all these state campaigns that needed to win close races. And to the degree to which, you know, Better Nevada or the Nevada Way Pack become sort of similar vessels for Republicans, I suppose we shall see. But we're going to have to leave it there because it is time for the lightning round. For the uninitiated, this is where we run through the political or electoral stories that have stuck with us this week. But we do it at lightning speed. So, Eric, starting with you, what is in your lightning round? Yeah, so there has been a very, I mean, this, this saga has been going on for a while, but there's a very interesting thing happening in Douglas County. Um, and there was a particularly um, eye-opening scene that happened at the Douglas County School Board meeting this week um, involving, just for some context, there was a superintendent candidate who has gotten some pushback in the last couple of weeks um, about criminal history and um, just history in another school district. And then yesterday at a school board meeting, there was a journalist who was given nine minutes to, journalist is a, is a the word to describe yeah. the person. <laughs> that word um, we could use, yeah. Um, but um, who was given nine minutes to kind of just speak about this this candidate's history and they essentially said there's nothing to it there's there's no history of wrongdoing with this candidate um and the school board did not buy that argument because they did not agree to the superintendent um so and, it was and this is the the same school board right that hired joey gilbert to be their legal counsel yes. at a cost of many many dollars yes and sean knows everything there is to know about that unfortunately I know too much. Incredible. There's a deep rabbit hole in Douglas County, and and you can find a lot of our stories on it if you want to go look them up. Oh yeah, I I always love a little a little deep dive into uh, what's happening out in rural Nevada. Okay, Sean, what's on your lightning round? Um, yeah, I think this has kind of come to a head this week with the impeachment of the director of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, Republican U.S. Senate Senate candidate Jeff Gunter has, um, I don't know, I'll, I'll qualify it maybe as a mild obsession with Mayorkas. Um, apparently, the two went to high school together and were also on the Senate team, to, uh, the, the tennis team together, excuse me. Um, and Gunter this week tweeted, 
too bad we didn't have a most likely to be impeached back in high school um, and, and <laughs> included some yearbook photos. But I think Gunter kind of shot himself in the foot with this one because, you know, first of all, um, Mayorkas, he's a high ranking cabinet official. Gunter, he was a former U.S. ambassador to Iceland. So I, I think Mayorkas, you know, in terms of where their careers have ended up, kind of has the edge right now. And then with the photo that Gunter posted, it lists Mayorkas as the captain of the varsity tennis team. So Gunter basically outs himself as being an inferior tennis player. Um, it, it's kind of puzzling, you know, why he would go through the lengths to do this. It's more of a show of, you know, saying, look who I know. And it's, it's kind of yeah. weird, um, just kind of a, a yearning for relevance among the, the GOP wing who, you know, have targeted Mayorkas as a boogeyman. Um, it's weird, but, you know, I guess they played tennis together and... And and this is not the first time he's tweeted about being on the tennis team with Alejandro Mayorkas. I, I have recalled, yeah, it'll just come up from time to time. He'll just mention it. Repeatedly. It's, yes. Yeah. And it's something to keep an eye on. And he'll be he'll actually be in Las Vegas tonight because there is a Republican Senate forum. So I will be on the lookout if there are many any mentions of Mayorkas. Yes, please report back, Eric. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we will end with my lightning round item, which is a national item, but it just it captured me this week because yesterday uh, the chair of the House, uh, oh, what I forget the committee now, but it was one of the defense committees. It was basically like there's an unspecified Russian threat for, <laughs> that must be disclosed immediately. And everyone freaked out and they were like, well, what, what is the threat? And they clarified the news report said it was from space. So there was a brief window, like 30 minutes, where it's like, is this UFOs? Are we back to UFOs? Which I'm sure Harry Reid would have loved. Please Google Harry Reid UFOs. But um, no, it's just Russian nukes in space that are going to take out satellites or something, which we're back, I feel like, every every couple years uh, for, for real Reagan heads. You may remember the Star Wars program, the Strategic Defense Initiative, where we're going to shoot nukes out of space with lasers um, didn't happen. And then during the Trump administration, I actually think they wanted to restart SDI slash Star Wars. And at some point, Mike Pompeo is like, we need to like quadruple funding. Like this is one of the reasons why Space Force exists. So maybe Russian nukes in space uh, will make Space Force a thing. Um, but as long as we're talking about Space Force, I mean, they just stole the Star Trek logo and made it the US Space Force. So I don't know. I don't know what's happening in space, but hey, we're back. We're so back. Space is back. Uh, Russian nukes in space. Let's go. I don't. I don't even know what to make of it. I'm just. I'm plugged in now. Sp We're talking about space nukes now, and uh, it, um, it's above. I think our pay grade. Oh yeah, space nukes are above my pay grade. That's for sure. I'm just watching and waiting. Uh, someone, please tell me what to do about the space nukes. I would like to know. And with that, uh, we will end this week's episode of On the Trail. Our show is produced and edited by Joey Lovato with additional help from Michelle Rendells, Hallie Bernstein-Sailor, and Kristen Leonard. Uh, we won't have an episode next week. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks to start talking about candidate filing because, yes, primary season may be over, but welcome to primary season. From the Nevada Independent, I'm Jacob Solis. We'll see you later this month. 